As we enter into our study of the fifth chapter of the book of Acts, let's look back at, um, at all that Luke has reported to Theophilus. Remember, this is a letter. The book of Acts is a letter from Luke. Same guy who wrote the book of Luke, or the gospel of Luke. And he wrote it to Theophilus concerning what the Lord was continuing to do after His death and resurrection. Okay, so i got the cliff notes here, okay? First, we see the Lord appeared to the apostles and many other believers for a period of 40 days. The next thing is right before Jesus ascended into heaven, He strengthened the faith of His followers by promising that soon they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on them. The next thing is then as they were encouraged by His promise, He motivates them with a mission. So it's not just that, hey, you're going to receive this power from, from the Holy Spirit. You're going to receive this power from the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit for a purpose. Okay, God will never gift you with anything without having a purpose attached to it. So if you can sing, you should sing for His glory. If you can play an instrument, you should play an instrument for His glory. If you can speak... If you have that gift of speaking in front of people, you should use that for, your, for His glory. If you're really good at, at managing money and being a financial wizard, you should use that gift and that talent for His glory. If you are a good friend and you're compassionate and you're, you're understanding and you're patient, you can extend those gifts and that fruit to other people for His glory. And so the things that the Holy Spirit empowers us to do... Those spiritual gifts that we're told, that we're given, those are not for you to set on and those are not for you to boast in. Those are for you to humbly use for the glory of God. And so that's what He does. He says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit and you're going to receive power and the power is for a purpose. After, he, after this, He extended... And the believers gathered together in one place and they began to pray, they began to study the Word, and they were strengthened in their unity. And then, um, during that time, they elect Judas Iscariot's um, replacement, Matthias. Um, and then on the day of Pentecost, we see something miraculous happen. The Holy Spirit fulfills the promise of Jesus and He comes upon the apostles and, and, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit and, and flames of fire, tongues of fire came on them, and they were able to speak miraculously in foreign languages. Now, I personally don't believe that they spoke in unknown heavenly languages. There's a lot of people who believe that, and that's fine, but the way I see it is that, that God was an opportunist because there were hundreds of, of, of uh, even hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem for the, the Pentecost festival, and they were from all different regions who spoke all different languages. And it just makes sense that God gave them the utterance as an opportunist to share the gospel with the world. Because they were going to receive power to be His witnesses unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And so the uttermost parts of the earth, a large majority of the world was represented at the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. And so they speak miraculously in these different languages. And then after this, Peter preaches the very first sermon, and in the very first invitation to the very first sermon, he ends with calling people to believe in Jesus, to repent of their sins, and be baptized in Jesus' name. And it was a very simple message. It wasn't overcomplicated. Now, um, 3,000 people 
namely 3,000 men, probably not counting the women and children, were added to their number that day. And we see that the Lord was continuing to build His church. And in the past we've talked about beware of going to a church to where the pastor is standing and boasting and proud and the ministry leaders are talking about all the people that, that they're attracting and, and how their programs and their ministries are building up the church. We have to always keep one thing straight. This is His church and He will grow it as He desires. And, and, and if, if, if something's going on in a church and people are really coming and, and, and people are being saved and the pastor stands up and he's boasting about that and he's talking about how much stuff he's doing to grow the church, it, may not, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that the, the, the Lord isn't at work, but it's not because of that man, it's in spite of that man that the Lord is working. And so the Lord was adding people to the, the number of his church. And then Luke reports in chapter 3 that Peter and John were going to the temple uh, to pray and where, where they miraculously heal a man who had been crippled from birth. And you guys remember this story. The religious establishment, those standing around, they, they kind of look at him and they, as if they don't know how in the world this happened, who did this. And so Peter and John start to proclaim the name of Jesus, the resurrected Lord and the Messiah, the, the, the Savior of the world. And, and then that kind of rubs some people the wrong way. And so in chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested and warned to never preach or do anything in the name of Jesus again. And we talked about how, how in, in, in our country, we need to take a lesson from the apostles of the first century. Okay? It, it made no difference to them if they were told they couldn't do things in the name of Jesus. It made no difference to them if they were imprisoned or, or whipped or beaten or reprimanded. Because what we see then is after they're, they're tried, they're, they're beaten, they're shooken up, they return to the apostles, and we don't hear one complaint, we don't see them whining, they simply report what had happened, and they all get together, and what do they do? Do they form a coalition to go and lobby and try to get the rules changed? No. What do they do? They pray for more boldness to just keep simply doing what Jesus said that they should do. Because they remembered what Jesus said back in the Gospels. That you're going to be persecuted. And Jesus never told them, listen, when you are persecuted, you need to go and talk to these people so they'll stop. But see, what we do in this country is Christians have become so consumed with fighting government. Because government tells us, well, you can't pray in school. And you can't hold the Ten Commandments up in the courthouse. And I'm not saying that, that that should be happening, but the reality is it's happening. And we've become so sidetracked in our country to be trying to fight the rules that are being handed down. We're completely ineffective in sharing the gospel as a whole. We should be praying for more boldness. That as Christianity becomes more and more and more of an unpopular thing, and we become less and less of the home team in this country, we should be praying for more boldness to continue doing what we're supposed to do regardless of what the world is trying to press in on us. Does that make sense? And then the last thing we see in chapter 4, it ends with Luke reporting how the church was unified, it was experiencing great grace from God and it was doing extremely generous things to take care of one another. See, because they were so focused and unified on what 
Jesus had told them to do. That they didn't, they didn't break off into political factions. They didn't break off into different denominational, denominational belief systems. Whenever persecution came, whenever they were pressed to stop doing what Jesus told them to do, they simply prayed for more boldness. They continued to be unified. And they experienced great, great grace and growth as a result of it. And this is what, where we, we come to the end of chapter 4 and move on into the first 11 verses of chapter 5. This is what chapter 4 verse 36 on through 5.11 says. Joseph, a Levite and a Cypriot by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds from the field? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it your, at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. There was an interval of about three hours when his wife came home, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked, did you sell the field for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to her, Why did you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Instantly she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and all those who heard these things. This passage starts with Joseph leading the example. Joseph was a Levite, he uh, owned land, he was a follower of Jesus, he was nicknamed Son of Encouragement, he was a great guy, everybody liked him. And so what he does is he goes and, and, and he sells a piece of property, and in a show of generosity and appreciation for what God had done in his life, he brings the money and he lays it at the apostles' feet. And this is a great example to us on how believers should give to the church today. This is actually this practice of, of bringing your possessions and laying it at, at the apostles' feet. It's kind of our model for, for the, the first century church giving us a model for why we give money to the church. Because even back then, taking care of people, ministry cost money. I mean, there were widows to feed. There were orphans to take care of. I mean, there were people losing their jobs and, and there were people coming up sick who needed money and needed food and needed shelter to, and needed clothing to make it through. And so the church had huddled around it, it, itself. And this was not a form of Christian socialism. This was not forced, okay? Um, th this was not something that the church said, everyone has to sell a piece of property and bring it and lay it at the apostles' feet. And we're just going to share everything in some kind of communist government. That's not at all what it was. These were men and women who were compelled by the Spirit and a generosity and an appreciation to the Lord to do something, to, to fund the ministry of their church. And so this is a great example for us on how we should give to the church today. It should be done gladly. 
It shouldn't be done begrudgingly. You know, gotta go give my check to the church this week. Paul says if you can't give gladly, don't, I mean, it's better that you not give. Because the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And God says, even in the Psalms, He says, I don't desire sacrifice, I desire obedience. Okay? God says, what do I need from you? I don't need anything from you. I have, I have, I have cattle on a thousand hills. I'm the creator of the universe. I spoke it all out of nothing. I mean, nothing was there, and I spoke it, and it became. If I need money, I'll just speak it. And so what He wants, what God desires from us, is a generous heart. A gratitude that we even have a job. A gratitude that we live in a country to where we throw away more than the rest of the world uses. And an appreciation for that. And a good management of what God has given us. It should be done humbly. You know, the picture that Joseph gives is that, that, that he doesn't come in and he doesn't you know, have a trumpet and a band out in front of him and he doesn't have his his big box of money or his big bag of coins and he's you know jingling it as he comes in and, and he sets it down and he says it's that you know he doesn't name how much it is he just brings it in quietly he lays it at the apostles feet and he walks away and so it's done freely he doesn't earmark it for the flower committee he doesn't earmark it he doesn't set it aside and designate it for the building fund he simply brings it and lays it at the apostles' feet and he trusts that the men that God has appointed to lead can handle it. And so, it's also done honestly. We have no indication that he kept any of it back. We have no indication that, that he was trying to bribe anybody. He simply sold a piece of property. He brought all the, the proceeds from that property he laid it at the apostles' feet, and he walked away. The next character we see is a man named Ananias. Ananias also sells a piece of property with the intent of donating some of the money to the church. And there was nothing wrong with that, by the way. You even saw it that Peter said, it was your property to sell. And it was even your property that after you sold it, you had complete discretion on what you did with the money. You didn't have to give us all of it. But see, his intent is different. Ananias sells a piece of property, and his motive is very different than Joseph's. You see, Ananias' example of giving is a sad reflection of how many present-day believers give to the church. He gave with false pretense. He gave with false pretense. Meaning, he gave, and he said, I'm giving it all. I'm bringing... All that there is to give from the property. I'm laying it down. I'm giving it all. But in reality, he was only giving some. So he gave with a false pretense. He was pretending to do something that he was not actually doing. He gave to receive praise and recognition. He gave to receive praise and recognition. Why else would he hide the fact? That, that he wasn't giving all of it. Or he was, he was seeking approval of some sort. See, because if he wasn't seeking approval, he would have come and he would have said, hey, I sold this piece of property for $1,000. Um, I'm going to give half to the church, and I just want you guys to do with it whatever you want to do. It's, it's no big deal. Okay? 
But because he was seeking something, he had an ulterior motive. He probably came in and probably looked like this. Um, I sold this piece of property for $500. And I'm giving it all. Isn't that great? I'm giving 100% here. I'll take my pat on the back now. When he, he was only giving a portion of it. He lied about his commitment, in other words. He covered something up. He told the church, I'm bringing it all. When in fact he was lying and he only gave some and he gave the gift with stipulations. It wasn't, it wasn't done freely. I mean, there was, there was something that he was hoping to get, whether it was recognition or, or some kind of praise or some kind of plaque. You know, in my home church, and I'm sorry if anybody from my home church listens to this, um, but they, they like sold pews to raise money. Like many, 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 many years ago. Like my grandparents had a pew. And I, I know that's like something, but like it wasn't just, hey, we're going to like sell pews for a couple hundred dollars. It was, if I'm going to spend a couple hundred dollars on a pew, I need a, a gold plaque on the side of the pew with my name on it. It's mine. Or people who donate certain gifts to like, I, I've been in a church and please forgive me if anyone in this church has done this. I just personally, I think it's silly. But they'll donate like a like a, a blender to the church, and they'll they'll get one of those label makers, and they'll put their name like donated from, and then they'll put their name, and then they'll give it to the church because they want the church to know who gave the blender. And it wasn't even a new blender; it was the blender that was on the fritz, and they went out and bought a new one. They need two blenders. I'm definitely not giving the Lord the new one, so I give the Lord the old one. I worked at a church one time where somebody gave a uh, a paper shredder that didn't work. And said, you think you guys can fix this? <laughs> so I don't know why people just bring their junk to the church and give it. But anyways, that's how people do sometimes. And so we see the very different types of giving, right? You guys with me? You have one guy, he just came and says, listen, I sold this piece of property. Here's the money. Do with it what you want. And we have another guy who says, I sold this piece of property and I'm giving it all. And he's got, you know, bills just wrapped up in his back pocket. And he's, you know, getting ready to go to the mall or go whatever they did back then to the, I don't know, the farm, going to buy sheep, I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, whatever they were going to do, whatever they are going to spend money on, and he says, I'm giving it all. And he conspires with his wife, who's the next person we see, is Sapphira. And she enters the story, and she has conspired with her husband and quickly finds out how God feels about being lied to. Because this, this is the root of the issue here. The issue is not that they were greedy. That's part of it. The issue is not that, that they, they weren't as generous as they should have been. Because Peter told uh, Sapphira, it was your land. You could have done, what, or I'm sorry, he, he told Ananias, it was your land, you could have done with it whatever you wanted to do with it. You didn't have to give us all the money. But you lied to God whenever you said that you're giving it all. And so, so the issue here is the lie. And the lie was about the commitment. Are you starting to see the application for us tonight? The lie was about the level of commitment. Because see, we have people, we have two people here who come together and they say, we're giving it all. You can have it all. But in reality, they're keeping a portion back for themselves. 
that they're not willing to give up. And that is the lie that really sets God off. She sought with her husband to serve both God and money. What does Jesus say about that? You cannot serve two masters. You either hate one and love the other, but you cannot serve both God and money. You can't let your money get in the way of what God wants to do in your life. You own your money. Your money doesn't own you. Okay? She thought that her dishonesty was only against the apostles. She didn't know God very well, did she? Because any lie, for those of you who profess to know Christ, any lie is a lie to God. And it's a lie about God. Think about that. Because you say you know the truth. You say you have a relationship with the truth. You say that you believe in the truth and that the truth is the one who has set you free. And it's the truth that, that is your, your, your Savior and your guide. And, and, and it's the truth. that Jesus referred to Himself as the truth. And when we lie, whether it's just to people or our parents or our friends, we're not only lying about God, we're lying to God. Because He holds us to a standard of truth and honesty. According to Peter, she and her husband had tested the Spirit to see just how much they could get away with. I believe that a lot of us have fallen into a lifestyle of not seeking how holy we can live and how pleasing to God we can be, but just how much do we have to do to be okay. Just how much do we have to do to just be okay? The frightening thing for me is I don't know if God even speaks that kind of language. I sure don't see it in Jesus' teaching in the gospel. And I sure don't see it in Peter or Paul's presentation of what a Christian life looks like. I sure don't see room in the gospel message, in the way that we're supposed to respond to God's grace as how much do I have to do to just be okay? How much do I have to do to get my tickets stamped? To get my, myself into heaven? And just like the two of them, they immediately experienced God's judgment. And one day, you and I are going to experience God's judgment. And that's the scary thing for me. Is I, I'm not a big hellfire and brimstone, you're all going to hell for not being perfect kind of preacher. That's not at all because, I, you know what, guys, I, I'm in the front of the line if that's the way it is. I know that I have failed you guys. I failed your your parents, I've failed God, I've failed my wife, I've failed my son, I've failed a lot of people, and I have sinned in a lot of different ways in my life, but, but I, don't, I don't settle for that. Because I know that my God doesn't settle for that. And so what does God do with a partial commitment? What does God do with a partial commitment? The knowing part of I'm okay with just being okay. I don't want to be any better. 
Because everyone else around me is about like I am. And so I don't want to really stick out. I don't want to have to be different. I don't want to have to give up some kind of relationship. I don't want to have to give up some kind of bad habit or some kind of lifestyle that I've grown accustomed to. I don't want to have to go out and be uncomfortable sharing the gospel and showing love and taking care of the widows and taking care of the orphans and caring for the poor and feeding the hungry and clothing the people who don't have enough. I don't really, I don't really want to give up my stuff. I just want to be okay. What does God do with that? Well, the best place to look is in Scripture. But what does God do when we say on Sunday and Wednesday that we love the Lord, but on every other day of the week, we're proving that we love the world much more? What does God do when we confess to follow Him, but our lives are marked more by following the trends, language, and fads of popular culture than by the Holy Bible? What do we do whenever our traditions are so saturated with pop culture that, that, that we don't look any different from the world in the way we live our lives. What does God do when we quote scripture in one Facebook status and then maliciously tear down others with the next? What does God do when we are baptized as self-proclaimed believers but don't actively do anything to repent of our sins and be transformed into the likeness of Christ? What does God do when we say things like God is my number one priority or God is first in my life but we tell and show our boyfriends and girlfriends we love them much more than we love God? Because we spend more time with them than we spend with God. Because we spend more time trying to get to know them and writing them letters and, and chatting with them on Facebook and FaceTiming and Skyping and, and all these things and we're consumed with all these people but then we say... God is my number one priority. And God's up there. And he's, he's like, really? Really? You spent three minutes with me today. Overall. Not even all at once. Happen more, most of the time he didn't even know I was around. What does God do with that? What does God do... When people who loudly and adamantly claim to know Him as their Lord, they wear the t-shirts and they, they post scripture all over their Facebook and they come to church and, and, and they leave tracts as tips. I mean, those people who are so self-righteous and they know their Savior and their Lord without a shadow of a doubt, but they live in complete disregard to the fact that one day He will judge them by the measure of His Holy Word. And His Holy Word has, has just as much to do with the things that we should be doing than it does with the things that we ought not to do. I can spend a lot more time talking to you from what I've read of Scripture. I can spend a lot more time talking to you about the things Christians should be doing than the things that Christians should not be doing. What does God do? with professing Christians who are unapologetically gossips, hateful, rude, liars, prejudiced, prideful, unwilling to serve the poor, and judgmental towards everyone who isn't like them and hell-bent on being better than everyone else. What does God do with them? 
Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's take a deep and serious look at the words of our Lord to answer that question. If you go back, and we, we, we preached through this, and it, it seemed like it took forever, but we preached through the book of Matthew. And if you go back to the seventh chapter of Matthew, you're at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is speaking to, to all who will listen to Him. He's saying hard and difficult things. Some people are trying to wrap their minds around, wait a minute. Yeah, we've always heard eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth and love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And, and, and you know, we've always heard, you know, don't murder. We've never heard anything about don't be angry and don't lust and, and, and go the other, you know, turn the other cheek and go the extra mile and love your enemies and pray for them. I mean, they're, they're trying to wrap their minds around all of these things that Jesus is saying that is fulfilling the full meaning of the law that in their fallen hearts they've never been able to comprehend. And he's saying that, that you should be this way with the poor and you should not worry about this and you shouldn't hold so closely to all of your possessions. And I'm not going to you know, go over the whole Sermon on the Mount because it took us like six months last year. But, but listen to Jesus' conclusion to his sermon in Matthew seven thirteen through 29. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who go through it. You know what that should tell us believers? Is that we should not look like the many. Our, our money should not be spent like the many. Our time should not be spent like the many. Our relationships should not be the same as the many. We are to be different because we're, we're, we follow a different type of leader who's not concerned with our popularity. He's not concerned with our personal wealth and health and prosperity. He's concerned with us properly reflecting His glory and, and being completely satisfied in Him and trusting Him with everything that we need. And then he says, How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life. And few find it. Few! This is the scary part for me, guys. This is what terrifies me, is that, is that Jesus is saying, few. Not a whole lot of people. In this country, something like 70% of the people in this country claim to follow Jesus Christ. Hundreds of millions around the world claim to profess Jesus Christ. And the reality is, is Jesus says few are going to find it. Few. And then he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but are inwardly ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but the bad tree produce, produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't bear good, produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. He's basically saying, look at yourself. Test yourselves against Scripture. Take an inventory of your fruit. Is your life marked more by selfishness and, and ego and, and personal pursuits of whatever it is that you think is going to make you happy? 
Or, or are your fruits more like gentleness and love and kindness and peacefulness and self-control and, and, and living for others and glorifying God and, and growth into the likeness of Christ? And then this is, this is where Jesus really, really starts to lay some heavy stuff on us. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day to me, many, there's that word again, the popular, the, 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 the mass population, the, 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 the in crowd, the group who came to church, and they were just worried. I mean, I, I see this as the people who went through life just seeking to be okay. And I would rather be wrong on this point that it's actually harder to follow Jesus than we act like it is than to stand here and tell you that if you just try to be okay and just be good people that you're going to be fine. I'd rather be wrong in telling you that it is, it is narrow to get into heaven. There's a narrow road and it's hard and it's difficult and it requires discipline and obedience and surrender to a Lord and you are His slave than to stand here and tell you that you just need to be buddies with Jesus. Because it's that important. He says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do miracles in your name? Did you know that but there's people speaking in the name of Jesus causing some really weird stuff to happen. I mean, there's people who, who, who you know, heal people and they, make, they cast out demons and they do all these things in Jesus' name and it's, it's crazy and people are just, large crowds are drawn. You know what? Satan disguises himself as an as, as a angel of light. Satan is a deceiver. And so there's a lot of people in this world who are operating in the name of Jesus who have nothing to do with Jesus and they're actually empowered by Satan in what they're doing. He says, you're going to perform all these miracles in my name and then I will announce to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you lawbreakers. The two foundations, therefore, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible man who built his house on the rock. Did you see that? There's action to the words. It's not just, I heard it, I memorized it, I wrote it on a postcard, I put it in my mirror, I read it every morning, I'm good. It's action. It's responding. It's actually building your house on the rock of the word of God. The rain will fall and the rivers will rise and the winds will blow and that house will be pounded, yet it won't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when the rains come and the rivers rise and the winds blow and the, the house is pounded, it will collapse and the collapse will be great. When Jesus had finished this sermon, the crowds were astonished at his, at his teachings because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like the scribes. Because he was God. And when God says something, it is not negotiable. When God makes a claim, it is black and white. 
We don't get to wiggle in any loopholes to suit us. You can go on living and regarding God as an afterthought or an add-on. And that's your prerogative. That's your God-given right to do that. But I'm telling you, if you don't listen to these words that are in this book, and if you don't get before God and beg Him for the mercy that you need, and beg Him for the strength and the boldness that you need, and the correction that you need, I'm telling you, He's going to look at you and He's going to say, I never knew you. I would rather, I would rather believe that God is serious about what He says in His Word and be wrong and there be all kinds of room for everybody. I don't believe that. But I'd rather be wrong at trying to be too consistent with the Scripture than to be wrong in telling you guys, just be good people. I want to pray for us. And um, if any of you need to hang out and talk, I'm here for you. Just stay. If you don't need to hang out and talk, please just kind of exit quietly. Um, But I'm glad to be back. I'm glad that the new year has started. Don't forget the announcements that I made earlier. Let's pray.